Long live the Queen. I have, in sincerity, pledged myself to your service. Perhaps you could just give us an idea of what the last year has been like. Um... Sir, have you, broke, have you spoken to your brother since the interview? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. By that point, I took matters into my own hands. He's one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life. There is no good time to talk about um, Mr Epstein. Welcome to On Royal Watch, a special series hosted by the Know How Podcast. We're doing a deep dive into the British royal family and their symbiotic but complicated relationship with the media. We talk to experts and journalists as we unpack the Windsor's biggest scandals and we ask the questions, what is the future between the press and the royals? How is that changing? And why do we care so much about a hereditary family in the 21st century? episode, we focus on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's frenzied relationship with the press, their romance, wedding, pregnancies, public exodus to the U.S. via Canada, family dramas, and now a hopeful rebranding as media moguls continue to make headlines in the U.K. and around the world. The two first met on a blind date in July 2016. They were set up by a mutual friend. By that October, they were officially dating. After a public courtship, they announced their engagement in November 2017. Megan, take you, Harry, to be my husband. On May 19, 2018, some 29 million people, along with a host of A-list celebrities and thousands of onlookers, watched the couple say their vows at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Not long afterwards, the couple announced they were expecting their first child, and in May 2019, Archie was born. Meghan Markle, an American actress and the first person of colour to marry into the inner circle of the British royal family, was popular with some and criticised by others. The Sussexes spent their time fulfilling their royal duties and living out the, quote, fairy tale, but we now know from the March 2021 Oprah interview that Markle was struggling during this time. I remember so often people within the firm would say, well, you can't do this because it'll look like that. You can't, so even, can I go and have lunch with my friends? No, 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 you're oversaturated, you're everywhere. And I said, I've left the house twice in four months. I'm everywhere, but I am nowhere. And from that standpoint, I continued to say to people, I know there's an obsession with how things look, but has anyone talked about how it feels? Because right now, I could not feel lonelier. By October 2019, they announced they would spend six weeks in Canada on an extended break. However, instead of returning to the UK, this shocking headline came in January 2020. In a sensational statement last night, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex announced their intention to step back as senior members of the royal family. Sharing the uh, message on their social media, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan said they would work to become financially independent while continuing to support Her Majesty the Queen. Since then, the couple have settled in Los Angeles, had their second child, Lilibet, and worked to rebrand themselves in their new post-royal reality. We're looking behind the scenes of the royal family and how that connects to the press. We talked to royal editor-at-large for Harper's Bazaar, Omid Scobie. Scobie has also co-written a book with Carolyn Durand called Finding Freedom, Harry and Meghan and the Making of a Modern Royal Family. Really since William and Kate's wedding, gosh, 10 years ago now, I had been there covering all of the major royal milestones and 
at the time I was running the European Bureau for an American magazine called Us Weekly. And we had terrible access when it came to the royals. And so when William and Kate got engaged, I sort of made it my mission to get in with the palace and actually establish some kind of relationship. And it was came as a surprise to me that they were actually very interested in sort of having that media connection across the pond. Um, with me being US media, sometimes you think that perhaps the British monarchy is not so interested in what the, the Yanks think of them over there, but actually it means a lot. And so we're able to establish a great relationship early on. And I became sort of an honorary member of the Royal Rota over here. So I was on all the Royal tours and got to know the young Royals pretty well during that time. So by the time I turned it into a full-time gig um, at the end of 2017, uh, of course, Harry and Meghan were an item. I'd found my worlds that sort of collided, the Royals and celebrity sort of beats came together um, kind of in the in the best way possible for me because I had sources on both sides and it was sort of a great starting point for me but it is I think what always surprises people when I talk to them about covering the beat is the level of access you know when you're covering uh, public figures in general there's usually that sort of arm's length distance that you have from them whereas with the royals you're literally in their shadows as they're carrying out their work and their engagements and celebrating family milestones you're there for the weddings the engagement announcements the the baby arrivals um and you become obviously there's always going to be that sort of line between the press and the royals but you become very familiar with each other it's really interesting listening to that um him saying that they're really familiar with each other because actually at some points um we found out rather too intimately what the um, royal family think of the press. I, I remember there's that great clip of um, Prince Charles talking about Nicholas Witchell, then the BBC royal correspondent, and calling him that awful man when he was caught on um, mic unexpectedly. And again, Prince Philip, um, he was caught calling them um, bloody reptiles at one point when he was on a, a tour of um, Bangladesh. Um, and I think it's really interesting that um, this idea that the press is such a part of the royal family, it's useful on both sides. You know, they, for Buckingham Palace, they can use the press as a tool to communicate with the public. Um, the media uses the monarchy to attract uh, readers and viewers themselves. So that there's this very sort of symbiotic relationship, I think, that goes on there that um, Omid Scobie has just talked about. When he talked about getting to know each other quite well, I the first thought that came into my mind was, is this a one-way street, though? Are they just an extension of the many people that work around the royal family that might know them intimately, but that the royals might not know their lives? Or is it something where the royals actually do get to know the press and the people that cover them? There is this kind of royal rota that goes on, so they must see the same faces over and over again. And what we tend to hear more about is the correspondence that the royals don't get on with, like I, I was just talking about. But um, as Amos Scobie was saying, they're there for the weddings, they're there for the engagements, the funerals, the babies. I mean, how many of our own family and friends could say that we'd see this, the same people turn up to the same events time after time? That's true. I guess maybe that's what influences the coverage of the royals because they are humanised to them at the end of the day. 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, they are and they aren't. If I mean, we're going to talk about some of the hostile coverage that has um, come out over Harry and Meghan. But um, I've read reports of royal correspondents talking about their work and how they haven't covered stories at various times. You know, when Harry was starting on sort of new relationships, I've um, read people that like, talk about not reporting, you know, the first date or something in case like sort of it all goes wrong. Um, so, yeah, there there is a relationship there that if you haven't done that real beat, I think it's quite difficult to understand. And when we're talking about the royal family and the press, we need to mention those working for the royal family, such as the private secretaries, aides, and various communications people make for what is called the firm. I think people will often find it hard to believe, but it's not the members of the royal family themselves that are in control of everything that's going on. It is the institution. And I think that was something I really wanted to introduce with the book. And I've seen Harry and Meghan sort of continue to do so in many of their interviews is really differentiating or establishing that difference between the institution and the family members themselves. You know, we've always heard them referred to as the firm. And I think people have always been a bit confused about what that means. Is the firm the business or is it what Prince Philip used to refer to as the firm was them? That was them as a family and their family business. So the institution is the machine that keeps it all moving. It is the, it is the thing that makes sure that everyone is on track and that best interests will always be for the crown as opposed to anyone or anything else. I think that's really vital because, yeah, we've been talking about the royal family themselves, but the civil servants, the palace um, staff that surround the royal family are hugely important. I mean, Princess Diana referred to them as, you know, the men in grey. Um, I think she even referred to them as the enemy at one point. And... I don't know if you remember, there was certainly a lot of stories that went around that when Harry was trying to see the Queen before he and Meghan sort of officially left the royal family, um, trying to get a meeting with her was proving very difficult because it was the, the men in grey who seemed to not be able to facilitate that, which meant that there was more of a distance and you know a lot more tension that, than came out. And so I suppose we have to think about it's not just the media having relationships with the royal family themselves, but you know those that surround them. And I wonder how much of what the royals do say, even though they're usually quite reserved, how much they say to the press is filtered through the firm. Is it word by word? Is it just basic talking points? How, how much are they rehearsed every time they talk to the press? I think we've seen sort of over the years that various members of the royal family have had very high profile, distinguished people in their communications um, teams. I think one of um, Henry Clinton's team used to work for one of the, the younger royals. And so I think that is very carefully stage managed. What I think is interesting is the kind of the off the record comments, how they're being filtered through through aides, because then there's deniability um, as well. Was it an aid misconstrued what a member of the royal family might be thinking? Or is it a useful way of distancing yourself from that? And maybe that's a big difference between, let's say, Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton, is that Kate was probably a lot more familiar with how things go on in that circle, but seems to play by the rules or okay to play by the rules. I often think to myself, what is she thinking? Is she okay with being so... I would say, reserved in, in public and 
being that perfect image that we see her as. I often wonder about her and what's going on in her mind. Oh, absolutely fascinating. Um, I think Hilary Mantel, the novelist, wrote a whole piece about um, Kate Middleton and this this reserve, this kind of perfect image that is projected, uh, which I think she obviously um, got a lot of criticism for. The Duchess of Cambridge has obviously grown up with the British press and was the girlfriend of Prince William for a long time before they actually got married. So has had years of enduring the weighty Katie jibes, but seeing how that mechanism works in a way that I guess that Meghan had a much more rapid um, introduction to like how the um, British press operate, I think. And she, I think, underestimated it because she was already f- somewhat famous. And so I think she thought she already knew that's what's been really interesting. It's a different approach to how you manage the media if you're an actor or a celebrity than how the royal family you know, interacts with the British press. And I think that must have been a real shock to the system. And of course, it's not surprising for a royal family to have people working for them and handling their communications. But when you're the go-between the press and the royal family, I'm assuming there is a lot of handling on both sides and to make sure that both sides stay in line, so to speak, if they can, if the firm can control that. The palace is sort of regularly feeding information and all the details on the work that they're doing. So there's always something to cover. Um, as a royal correspondent, and I don't want to sort of belittle my own work, yes, a lot of it is about generating your own stories, but there is an element of it where if one wants to, you could just sit there and take everything from the palace as and when it comes in and still look great in front of your editors or, you know, and and for the publication that you represent. For me, that's a journalistic conundrum because the Queen is technically the head of state, but because so much of that is ceremonial now, let's face it, It's like the royals are in this place of being both celebrity and monarchs. And so what's your reaction to journalists being fed so many stories about them? I mean, part of it is just practicalities. I mean, the Queen does this, you know, the Prince of Wales does that. Duke of Cambridge is on this kind of tour. And so, yeah, there is some sort of set piece stories that have to be covered in the same way as if you're a political journalist you have to cover the opening of parliament you have to cover the party conferences or whatever but then are we holding a part of the apparatus of state up to account if journalists don't go beyond that and I think you've hit the nail on the head talking about this kind of an easy conundrum of like both celebrity and monarchy The Queen matters because she's the head of state, but she's a figurehead. Are we really interested in her position in how she affects us as head of state? Or is it just that we really want to know whose marriage is going well, whose marriage isn't, who's not talking to each other? I mean, that is celebrity stories. If you I mean, if you look at the supposed feud between the Cambridges and the Sussexes, that has no real effect, I would say, on what happens in the day-to-day running of life in the UK. But we're fascinated by it because it's um, this primeval uh, quarrel being played out in front of us. And the Queen herself represents a long line of monarchs in the UK. And I just wonder when 
when she goes, do we still really want to have that pomp and ceremony and that respect and reverence, the reverence that the media have? And us as a public, we generally show a lot of reverence to the Queen. Well, it's interesting. There's a Scottish political theorist who talks about it being called the glamour of backwardness. This is why the Queen is a global brand. You know, she's 16 queens rolled into one, you know, because she's not just the head of state in um, the UK. Um, She's obviously head of state in the Commonwealth uh, countries. And she has been, because of the longevity of her reign and the particular approach she's taken to queenship, there is that huge reverence. Is that going to last for, you know, when the Prince of Wales becomes king, you know, even when Prince William becomes king? I think we're in a really interesting transition time, and I'm not sure we're going to see the same sort of reverence at all. And Harry and Meghan speak so fondly and so positively about the Queen. Well, I think you have to. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to be cynical here, but that's her dual role as you know the head of the family and as the as the grandmother and a woman in her nineties. I think. There has been criticism of Harry and Meghan um, for what they've done. And one thing they've been really careful never to do is criticise the Queen. Because if I think if they did that, sort of that's sort of game over for that's them. That's the last drop. Yeah. Where I found things started to change for me was when I realised there were sides of the story that I was perhaps a little bit more interested in than the, perhaps the palace would have liked. So, you know, Harry and Meghan's decision to step away from their royal roles was something that really started to develop in 2018. You know, that was a time when they were really starting to think about how things could be done a little differently after the wedding and how their royal roles would look. And, you know, I started to learn about some of the, some of the friction between them and the institution itself. And that became an area of interest for me. Um, you know, we've all heard stories about how hard it is to sort of find a place within the institution if you're not a direct heir. And I think Harry has been sort of living proof of that. And of course, the sort of slightly difficult arrival that Meghan had um, and, and that sort of awkward welcome that she had into the fold made for a much more interesting story for me than what, you know, William and Kate were doing on an engagement. And I think it was at that, that, that time and you know, really up until today that I have found that there's that kind of, the palace don't like it when you don't want to play the game with them. And, you know, that's generally always a tough to sit, di- position to be in as a journalist because you want the access, but you also want to not follow the same narrative as everyone else, not be satisfied with being spoon-fed information. And, you know, I, I think... You know, when we fast forward today, you know, I've released a biography on Harry and Meghan and, their de- and, and re- that really tried to tell the story of their departure and everything that had led up to it the last August. And it was around that time that a very, very senior aide at the palace said to me, so well, you do realise that you've picked your corner and you've got to stay in it now. So the firm letting a journalist know that they've picked a side, essentially, what does that say about the press if they're being put in positions where they have to pick sides? Well, talking about being forced to pick sides, I think that says as much about the royal family as it does about the press in in a way. Um, David Yelland, who's the um, editor of The Sun a few years back, has talked about like sort of both sides having contempt for each other. But this, there is 
an idea, though, that to get access to one um, side of the royal family, um, you can't have access to them all. If you want that uh, to make them your premier contacts, then you're not going to get access to the others. And I think the press have seen that as in a way that they would, you know, talk to different politicians, talk to, you know, befriend certain celebrities. The royals have now become part of that game too. But I think the thing is, is that what the royals have learned, though, um, this can turn, you know, on a sixpence, that just because they've had sympathetic coverage from one area of the press in the past, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to have the same. And I think the Prince of Wales and uh, Camilla Parker Bowles have seen this. I think William and Kate have seen this. And I think certainly Harry and Meghan, who did get some very you know, positive coverage, have seen that turn because they've been seen to be close to other journalists. And then you know, journalists don't like that. It's such an odd thing because it's supposed to be one family and presumably the firm is supposed to represent the one family. But I guess it goes back to what Scobie said, was that ultimately it's about the crown and not the family. So it will always be, number one, the crown first. Yes, and that is something that you see the young royals almost sort of tussling for space. But at the end of the day, it's always going to be the queen who's going to come out on top. Definitely, and there are some journalists that are very loyal to the queen and very loyal to the crown. And this certainly played out very strongly with one Piers Morgan, uh, <laughs> who is a long-standing British broadcaster and former Good Morning Britain presenter. Morgan spent months criticizing Meghan and Harry, and particularly Meghan Markle, and it was all leading up to the Oprah interview, as ITV reports. And I understand that you don't like Meghan Markle. You've made it so clear a number of times on this programme. Even by the standards of a show in which confrontation is nothing new, this, between two of its presenters this morning, was extraordinary. But yet you continue to trash her. OK, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry, no. Oh, Sorry. Do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe, not my no, own No, 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 no. See you later. I'm being... Sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behaviour. The clash followed Piers Morgan's angry on-air reaction yesterday to the interview the Duchess of Sussex had given to Oprah Winfrey, Morgan saying he didn't believe her. This is a two-hour trash-a-thon of our royal family, of the monarchy, of everything the Queen has worked so hard for. Putting aside the observation that gender and race are a play here in Morgan's reaction, why should a TV presenter get so worked up over an interview? Well, I think you have to get back on past history on this. Um, and uh, Piers Morgan, for a good couple of years, um, had been talking about the fact that before uh, Meghan Markle met Prince Harry, uh, she'd actually exchanged Twitter messages with um, Piers Morgan himself. Uh, they'd even been out for a drink once when she was still working as an actor in Suits. Went out for a drink. They never saw each other again. You know, for what reasons, we don't know. Presumably because uh, she was becoming a royal girlfriend and couldn't hang out with an ex-tabloid editor. And uh, But Morgan has talked about her ghosting him. And um, actually, it's really interesting. If you look back, he was actually pretty supportive of her 
before the engagement, during the engagement. I don't know whether not getting an invite to the wedding sort of turned him, but you know, when it became clear that there wasn't going to be any sort of special access, this is when you see his um, attitude to her um, start to turn. But also, he's a very canny professional controversialist. I think he sensed that there were a lot of the audience who were uneasy about uh, Meghan Markle and what she represented. And he kind of played on that. And actually, again, the other thing is he obviously made it into a freedom of speech issue. I mean, obviously, recently, um, Ofcom, the media watchdog, have ruled that um, his criticism of her you know, post the Oprah interview was harmful, offensive, but actually didn't breach the broadcasting code, So, which he has now taken as a, a victory of freedom of expression. And it's interesting because when he walked off, it really didn't seem necessary. No one was asking him to do that. He wasn't really backed into the corner. It was just someone pushing back a little bit on him and saying, like, hey, you don't like her. We all know that. And then he just kind of walked off. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, to be fair to him, I think he has now said that he, he made the wrong decision and he can't really go around complaining about people being snowflakey um, if he himself, you know, couldn't take the pushback. But uh, yeah, it seemed, you know, it was, you know, it was great television, which was like sort of why, you know, he did so well on Good Morning Britain. But yeah, it did seem to be a huge overreaction. Let's get into the Oprah interview, because it was a pretty big deal, it was watched by millions of people around the world. Very interesting. Oprah is the broadcasting goat. She is a self-made billionaire. She has her own network. She had a very successful show for years. I think she also went to the wedding. I think it was very fitting that she had the first really big sit-down interview with her. So here are some highlights. Was the move about getting away from the UK press, because the press, is, you know, is everywhere, mm. or was the move because you weren't getting enough support from the firm? It was both. Both. I needed to do this for my family. This is not a surprise to anybody. It's really sad that it's got to this point, but I've got to do something for my own mental health, for my wife's, um, and for, for Archie's as well, because I could see where this was headed. They didn't want him to be a prince or a princess, not knowing what the gender would be, which would be different from protocol, and that he wasn't going to receive security. What? It was really hard. Look, I was really ashamed to say it at the time, and a shame to have to admit it to Harry, especially, um, because I know how much loss he suffered. Mm -hmm. But I knew that if I didn't say it, that I would do it, and I, I just didn't, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. So Oprah wasn't a journalist. I, I don't think she would call herself um, a journalist, but you know, she really is a master interviewer. I mean, the tone is right. It's kind of, um, someone described it as a warm-hearted headmistress who loves her charges but won't take any nonsense, which is, I think, a really great description because she asks the difficult questions. She doesn't shy away from them, but it's done in a, in a sort of empathetic way. So questions that, with a more traditional journalist, might have seemed confrontational actually come across as sort of invitations to talk about something that may be difficult and I mean she knows how to deliver a line as well the great line of you know were you silent or were you silenced 
and also the reaction that she has when Meghan Markle first brings up the topic of you know, an alleged racist comment by the royal family. Oprah's reaction is is as dramatic almost as the um, the words that Markle herself says. It's compelling viewing. I really do think in the same way as you know the Princess Diana interview um, was, but. Oprah is as compelling almost to watch as Meghan and Harry are, which we can't say of the Diana interview. Yes, and Oprah herself says she's playing the role of the audience. So she wants to be the the vocal reaction and also asking the questions that she thinks her audience wants to know and wants to know the answers of. I've also heard from people who have interviewed Oprah that she basically takes control of the interview, that she basically... They'll ask one question and then she'll just be in command. So I think she has this incredible presence and this incredible insight into what people want to know, what people want to watch. And that was very apparent during that interview. And I wonder if Meghan and Harry had any remorse afterwards that they maybe shared too much. Probably not. I mean, it was an excellent interview. Uh, She just has such a way of putting people at ease and getting them to open up. You say that, but I I wonder, I mean, the reaction to the interview, um, you know, it made front page headlines in the US, it made front page headlines here, certainly much more difficult for a way back uh, for Meghan and Harry into the royal family after that, that interview. And who knows, I would be really interested to know whether they quite anticipated the reaction that, that that there would be. I can you know I can still see William's face as he walked across that playground and said, we are not a racist family. That is almost sort of unheard of for a, a member of the royal family and particularly someone as conventional as Prince William to be so angry that he would burst out like that to you know members of the press. I don't know what they think, but it was certainly absolutely explosive because of that. And Oprah's rule is always that when she interviews someone, they can never tell her what she can ask or not ask, but they can refuse to answer when she asks. So she has a very strict rule that she will ask the questions that she wants to ask, but people can say no. And I could see the difference between Meghan and Harry in that respect when she asked, when she pushed further about, well, who said the racist comment? He's like, I will never say that. And you could just tell maybe he's had just a few more years of experience in front of the camera or just a little bit more understanding of the consequences of being open in such a public view. And one point that Megan made in the interview, and that was confirmed also in our interview with Scobie, is that some of the negative press about Harry and Megan was leaked by the firm itself. But this, I think, is nothing new. It may have been shocking to um, Meghan coming into the royal family, but if we look back to the 1990s and you know what was known as the War of the Waleses between um, Harry's father and mother, um, Prince Charles and Princess Diana, both of their camps were very adept at trying to get the, the media agenda to follow their agenda. And I guess, you know, because the royal family very rarely takes a stand on new news coverage, they kind of never complain, never explain. Um, that allows this information to be fed into the press and not counted in the strong way that, say, you know, if you're a celebrity or if, a poli- if you're a politician, um, you might possibly do that. 
this can be on serious matters, but as um, Omid Scobie says, this can come down to the most innocuous of details. Because I remember hearing stories about, this is going back many, many years ago when William and Harry were children, about how easy it was for royal correspondents to make up a story and know that it would never be challenged. Something innocuous, a birthday present that was given or someone's riding a bike for the first time. The palace was never going to answer to it. The royals themselves were never going to talk about that kind of thing in the public space. And, and I think that it is that distance that the royal family kept from the press that has allowed this sort of whole other space for fictional royal news to exist. And I think if anything, the royals are sort of now taking some of that back. Um, we saw even just this past 18 months how you know the royals navigated the pandemic by doing their engagements over Zoom. It gave the public this sort of front row seat to these engagements that are usually reported on via one member of the press pack being there, who's then given the responsibility to file to all the other members of the press pack, who are then going to write their own versions of that story 20 times over. It meant that when now Kate was doing an engagement, we would hear exactly what she would say. It could not be misquoted or misinterpreted. Yeah, and so social media has been a game changer for people in the public eye to have direct contact to remove the gatekeeper of the press and to have direct contact with their audience. Amy Scobie was talking about doing engagements via Zoom because that's the sort of thing that you often see, you know, Kate has said something to a um, you know, someone who's passed her a bouquet of flowers and particularly um, a few years ago, you know, this was interpreted, had she said something about a baby, could it possibly mean she was pregnant? Prince William would make an off-the-cuff remark. Obviously, if everyone has seen um, the Zoom and has seen clearly what she says, then there can be no room for misinterpretation of those kind of remarks. But also, as you say, the social media aspect is that they can you know, put up on Instagram or other social media platforms what they want to be seen. And that is a much more a controlled moment where we seem to be seeing more. We seem to be seeing the real royals talking or, uh, you know, video or photos, but actually it's very carefully curated. That's a very good point that what we see is what they want us to see. It's very orchestrated. It's not, you know, the casual family, let's say, having their real life uh, on display. Exactly. I mean, maybe the two worlds collide hopefully <laughs> well but it's like everyone's social media we all put up our our best life up there we're seeing a particular aspect of royal life that they want us um, to think about whether it's the relatable younger royals whether it's the uh, reverent approach to the older royals but it's very much you know what the public benefits from seeing in their eyes rather than like the whole story do you think it's a good strategy or the correct strategy of the royals to over the decades just not challenge these small fabricated stories about whether someone was riding a bike here or doing this there. Is that the correct move just to let it go? I don't know whether it's the correct move. I think the the policy was if they corrected one story and not another, then they would be tied to 
correcting every story or that if a story wasn't corrected, it was a tacit understanding that it it must be true. And so it was a way of managing uh, the media. So I'm not sure whether it's a kind of case of was it the right thing to do? Was it the wrong thing to do? It was you know, one strategy. But obviously, um, that was a strategy that Harry and Meghan, I think, weren't prepared to to go along with. Right. And the beginning of the Oprah interview is a good example of that, because Oprah was asking Meghan about who made who cry in the in the Kate Meghan leading up to the wedding fiasco about who was making who cry there. And I think that's a classic story of like, it just no one pushed back on it. And they just let it play out. Who knows what the actual details were. But at that point, it didn't really matter. I don't think too many people were fact checking that story. No, but I think what is interesting is that there's been some kind of tacit um, acknowledgement that there was a sort of a conflict going on there, which at the time, the palace were by dismissing it, we're keen to say that, you know, there wasn't anything like that at all. But um, as you say, Harry and Meghan are much keener, I think, to set the story straight and react to when they see stories that they think are not correct in, in various ways. And that leads us to Meghan, who sued and won against the Daily Mail for copyright infringement of a personal letter she wrote to her dad that was published. I remember when I was in Southern Africa on the tour with the couple when they announced that Megan has taken on the mail on Sunday, who had published the handwritten letters she had written to her father. And at the same time, the news came out that Harry was also uh, pursuing cases against the Sun and the Mirror for sort of previous phone hacking allegations. And I thought, they have just taken on the media juggernauts of this country and from that point onwards there's no turning back they will never probably be seen or written about in a positive way because of that decision but they would have known that going into it and I think that again it shows how important it is to them to I think make change on a bigger level. I think it was a big shock that Harry and Meghan was so eager to take legal action. And I think certainly to the media giants who they've taken on, I mean, I think the the view has always been it would be more of a risk for the royals because the actual publicity around the case itself will bring the story into the public domain, that the royals don't wash their dirty linen in public, to use the old cliche. But this has been a way that I think that Harry and Meghan have really you know, shown how they're going to do things differently. This idea that they will sue if they believe that um, there has been a false story about them, if there's been an invasion of their privacy. And there have been the there's been the odd case um, before that. Um, Prince William and um, Kate Middleton sued a French magazine after they published um, pictures of her topless. And the Prince of Wales, I think, took Associated Newspapers to court over publication of a private diary. But in the main, like, sort of legal action has never been where the royal family has gone. So this is a real you know, turn in the road for them to do this. And this leads to a common criticism of Harry and Meghan, which is they claim to want privacy and even sue over it, but... 
they still are out in the public so much? Well, this is, yes, this idea of a public life where they have control over who gets access to them and where what they spend their time on and with who. And I think this is actually the really interesting um, bit where we come to, like, sort of, are the royal celebrities or not? Because this attitude is very much what I would see as a celebrity. You give up some of your life to the to the public, but not all. And you could do that because you're a celebrity. But this is where the difficulty, the royal family are funded by the taxpayer. They are part of the institutions of state. So the argument has always been, well, it's a different kind of deal. You're not uh, doing the same sort of thing. Right. So then you have to think about, well, what's important for the public to know? And are the public being honest with themselves about differentiating between what they need to know and what they want to know? Exactly. The public are not honest with themselves and the media feed into that by saying that all the uh, royal life is up for grabs because we pay for them and therefore we have a right to know. And of course, not everything should be up, up for grabs. And I think that has been, though, the misunderstanding and the argument that has been between Harry, Meghan, the press, in a way, about this tussle about what is appropriate and what is not appropriate and what do you own of us if we're you know, sort of part of a taxpayer-funded institution. That if you are a public figure, you are fair game, whether you like it or not. And I think that's where there's this kind of a a clash between what Harry and Meghan call privacy and, you know, saying that they're entitled to it um, and the British press who feel that what they're asking for is unreasonable and unfair. Standing back, my interpretation of it is privacy is something you choose when to have it and when not to have it. You know, if I, I and I think There was a moment actually in the Oprah interview that never made the final cut, but was aired on a morning show in the US and I wish it had, but Megan had really summed it up herself. She said, if I want to show you a photo of my child on my phone and I hand you the phone, that's not an invitation to scroll through my entire photo album. I'm sharing you one private moment. And I think that that generally is what we should apply to privacy in general. It's the same as if a celebrity sold an at-home photo shoot to OK Magazine. It's not an invitation for a tabloid to break into the house the next day and take pictures of their personal space. And I think that message still isn't quite clear at certain newsrooms in this country. I don't know when that will happen. So we've talked a little bit about how Meghan Markle's intersecting identities She has publicly identified herself as a woman of color, a black woman, a feminist, a self-made woman, a divorcee, and so forth. And that has clashed with some in the established press, which Scobie explains reaches beyond just Meghan Markle. We lack diversity in senior positions, and I don't just mean racial diversity, but socioeconomically, politically, when you lack that at the sort of heart of the establishment, it's not going to be reflected anywhere else in these publications. I mean, he's right. And in fact, what's key here is that actually half of journalists responding to a Press Gazette reader survey, um, so this is journalists themselves, said that they thought that media coverage of Meghan Markle had been racist. 
And this reflects also the fact that, you know, there's a lack of diversity in newsrooms in the UK. Um, A report by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism found that only 6% of journalists across UK newsrooms don't identify as white, compared to about 13% of the general population. So you have a woman who's coming into a very conservative institution that is reported on by very conservative institutions. So in some ways, it's not surprising that there has been this tension, there has been this criticism, because there haven't been enough reporters who've been able to look in a sort of in a diverse way. And in fact, actually, after the Oprah interview, the Society of Editors had come out sort of protesting that actually that um, it wasn't acceptable for Meghan to say that the press incited racism. And in response, more than um, 240 reporters and editors who self-identified as people of colour um, issued their own um, repost, basically saying this just reflects the sort of you know depressingly familiar reality of people from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds and how they're portrayed by the press on a daily basis. That was episode two of On Royal Watch, hosted by the Know How podcast. Next time, we'll examine the Queen and her relationship with the media. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.